Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. When someone asks you if you're having a good day, what criteria do you use to answer that? You know, most people use the criteria of circumstances. Most people assume that a good day just happens to them. If I get a whole lot done in the morning, I'm able to take the afternoon off, and I go to a restaurant for lunch, and a friend unexpectedly buys my lunch, and I get home and I check the mailbox, and there's no letter from the IRS, then I'm having a good day. For most people, the definition of a good day is that things are going my way. My day off is Wednesday. Uh, Earlier this spring, I had a project to finish the landscaping around our retaining wall and remulch all the beds. I figured it would take me a couple Wednesdays to do that. And so I dug the nine holes for the new bushes in the morning, and then I went out to find a tree to plant alongside them, and I found one on sale that was just the exact tree, and I brought it home, and, and I was going about planting these things, and, and late in the afternoon, a f- two fellows pulled up in front of our house with a truck full of mulch, and they said, we'd like to sell you some mulch, and I said, well, I've got my own trailer, and I always get my own mulch, and, and they said, well, how about if we charge you the price you would go to pick it up, and we just dump it here on your driveway? And I said, well, I can't do that because I won't get to it till next Wednesday. And then fortunately, my wife got into the negotiations and we got it for the same price and they put it in wheelbarrows and brought it around and dumped it all over our beds. And so as I was finishing up planting, my wife was spreading the mulch. And when we got done, it started to rain, just a nice, gentle rain. And we had a gentle rain all night long watering my new plants. And I remember standing at the window thinking, you know, this is like the Garden of Eden. I am having a good day. And next Wednesday, I'll get to go play golf. You see, that's the way most of us define a good day. But the problem with that definition is that it leaves us with a whole lot of bad days heard about a fellow named R.D. Jones. This is supposedly a true story of his attempt to put a classified ad in the newspaper to sell a sewing machine. On Monday, the ad read, for sale. R.D. Jones has a sewing machine for sale. Phone 555-0707 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Kelly, who lives with him cheap. Tuesday, we regret having aired in R.D. Jones' ad yesterday. It should have read, one sewing machine for sale cheap. Phone 555-0707 and ask for Mrs. Kelly, who lives with him after 7 (laughs) p.m. Wednesday, R.D. Jones has informed us that he has received several annoying telephone calls Because of the error we made in his classified ad yesterday, his ad should read as follows. For sale, R.D. Jones has a sewing machine for sale, cheap. Phone 555-0707. Ask for Mrs. Kelly, who loves him after 7 (laughs) p.m. Thursday. Notice, I, R.D. Jones, have no sewing machine for sale. 
Don't call 555-0707. The telephone has been taken out. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Kelly until yesterday she was my housekeeper. She quit. (laughs) Now, we would say he's having a bad day. But you know something? The Bible does not use the criteria of circumstances to define a good or bad day. In fact, according to the Bible, you can have a good day with bad circumstances, and you can have a bad day with good circumstances. And that should be obvious to us by just looking around. I mean, in a church this size, there are some people who are happy and joyful and content, and there are other people who are unhappy, bitter, complaining, and angry. Why is that? Well, it's not the circumstances because they're the same. It's not the people they're relating to because they're the same. It's not the weather. It's the same. You see, the issue is with the individual. You can make for yourself good days, or you can make for yourself bad days. How do you do that? Well, Peter's going to tell us in this passage. In fact, if you look at verse 10, he says, Let him who means to love life and see good days do some things. You see, there are certain things that you can do to love life and have good days. You say, well, what are those things? Well, we're going to look at them this morning. There are six exhortations that Peter gives us in this passage. And this is the equation for real happiness. This is the equation for how to love life. This is the equation for how to have a good day. And I want each of us to look into the mirror of God's Word this morning. And as, as we do so, I don't want you to think about how this applies to somebody else. I don't want you to sit there and say, I hope Rhonda Louise is listening. I want you to see how to apply this to your own life and your own relationships. Because we're going to see this morning how to have real happiness even in the midst of difficult circumstances and challenging relationships. And Peter begins in verse 8 by saying, to sum up. To sum up what? Well, back in chapter 2 and verse 11, he said, here's how to relate to the unbelieving world. Chapter 2, verse 13, here's how to relate to the government. Chapter 2, verse 18, here's how to relate to your employer. Chapter 3, verse 1, here's how to relate to your spouse. And now he says, let's sum it all up. Here's how you relate to everybody. And he gives us six things that ought to characterize the way we relate to everybody. Because the way you relate to people and to God determines what kind of day you're going to have. First characteristic of your relationships ought to be harmony in verse 8. To sum up, let all be harmonious. Now, most of you know that I'm not a singer, so it might surprise you that I know some things about harmony. In fact, let me just point out two obvious things about harmony. Number one, isolation does not lead to harmony. I cannot go off by myself and harmonize. It takes two or more to have harmony. 
And that's true in the Christian experience as well. You cannot fulfill this exhortation by going off by yourself. The Christian life cannot be fulfilled in a monastery. It has to be fleshed out on the street. It has to be worked out in relationship to other people. And then the second thing I know about harmony is that uniformity does not lead to harmony. If you take ten people and they've all got exactly the same alto voice, they can't harmonize. You see, harmony happens when people with differing voices blend them together without discord into a pleasing sound. And that's an apt description of our relationships as Christians. Because unity is not accomplished through uniformity. Cults try to do that. They say, well, if we all dress the same, wear our hair the same, if we follow the same detailed code of conduct, if we all do the same tasks, then we'll have unity. Well, that's not true unity. You see, true unity is cooperation in the midst of diversity, and that's why the most common analogy of the church in the New Testament is the body. The body is made up of all kinds of members, each one different from the other, but they work together to accomplish a common purpose. In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demanded that Linus change the channel on the TV. Linus said, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? And Lucy said, these five fingers... Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single fist, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. <laughs> Linus said, which channel do you want? And then he turned away and looked at his fingers and he said, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> well, that's what Peter is calling us to do. Get organized, live in harmony. Now, how do you do that? Well, this Greek word literally means to have the same mind. We are all different members of the body. We all have unique responsibilities. No one of us is the same, but we all have the same head, Jesus Christ. And because we have the same head, we are to have the same purpose, the same outlook, the same mind. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16 says, we have the mind of Christ. You see, it's like we all have different voices, we are all playing different instruments, but we have one and the same conductor. And because we have the same conductor, we should make a sound that is harmonious. Now the idea that we have one mind or the same mind does not mean that we agree on every point of every issue. Some Christians approach harmony that way. They say, in order to have fellowship with me, you've got to adhere to my list of doctrines, my list of standards, and my list of methods. Well, that's not what it means to have one mind. You see, if that were true, then I could just say, well, I know I'm right, and the reason we're not in harmony is because you don't get over here and think like me. 
Well, see, if that's your criteria for fellowship, you're going to have a very small circle. In order to have harmony in the body of Christ, you have to discern what is a doctrine I will die for and what is a doctrine that Christians can differ on. You see, I will die for my conviction of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God, and I will die for that conviction. I will die for my conviction that salvation is by faith alone. But I will not die for my conviction about a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I think I'm right. (laughs) But that's not a do-or-die doctrine. You see, I don't require that others hold to that position to have fellowship with me. We do not hold, uh, adhere that people have to hold to that doctrine to be a member of this church. We need to discern which doctrines are do-or-die doctrines and which doctrines Christians can differ on in order to have harmony in the body of Christ. And in order to have harmony in the body of Christ, you also have to discern what is a biblical absolute And what is a personal preference? There are a lot of Christians today going around willing to die for their personal preferences. You hear people say, well, we used to say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday in our old church. The pastor used to wear a robe in our old church. The pastor used to have hair in our old church. (laughs) We don't like the music. It's too loud. It's too quiet. It's too fast. It's too slow. It's hokey and pokey. We don't like the hymns. We don't like the choruses. Heard about a farmer who went to the city one weekend where he attended a large church. He came home. His wife asked him how it was, and he said, well, it was good, but they did something different. They sang praise choruses instead of hymns. She said, praise choruses? What are those? Well, he said, they're sort of like hymns, only different. She said, well, what's the difference? He said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be a hymn. If on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, Martha, Martha. Oh, Martha, Martha, Martha. The cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn are in the corn, the corn, corn, corn. Then if I were to repeat the whole thing two or three times, well, that would be a praise chorus. Another farmer went to the same city on the same weekend to a different church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. He said, well, it was good, but they did something different. They sang hymns instead of regular songs. Hymns, said his wife. What are those? He said, well, they're sort of like regular songs, only different. She said, well, what's the difference? The farmer said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a regular song. But if, if on the other hand, I were to say to you, oh, Martha, dear Martha, hearest thou my cry? Inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals, who can explain? 
There in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's Son or His reign, unless from the mild tempting corn they are fenced. Yea, those cows in glad bovine rebellious delight have broke free their shackles, their warm pens eschewed. Then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all my mild Chilliwack sweet corn have chewed. So look to that bright shining day by and by where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal makes my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. (laughs) Then he said, then he said, if if I were to do only verses 1, 3, and 4, and do a key change on the last verse, well, that would be a hymn. What's it mean to be of one mind? Let me show you a passage. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. At the end of that verse, Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Now, how do we achieve that oneness of mind? Do we do so by all dotting our I's and crossing our T's on every issue the same way? Do we do that by getting in total agreement on every secondary doctrine, every area of Christian liberty, every choice of preference? No. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. He answers the question. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Oneness of mind is achieved when I decide that you're more important than I am. Oneness of mind is achieved when I lay down my rights for the good of others. And Paul goes on to illustrate that in verses 5 and following of Philippians chapter 2 by demonstrating that the primary expression of the mind of Christ is that he laid down his life for us. You see, that's how you get harmony. To arrive at harmony, you've got to give up your solo career and blend your voices in to complement the voices of others in making a pleasing song to God. We're to be harmonious. Second thing about our relationships is sympathy. Verse 8, we're to be sympathetic. Now, the first exhortation has to do with our sharing the same mind. The second exhortation has to do with our sharing the same emotions. We are to be sympathetic. We are to enter into the feelings of other people. Bill Vaughn said one of life's major mistakes is being the last person in the family to come down with the flu after all the sympathy has run out. Well, in the family of God, our sympathy is not to run out. Romans 12, 15 says we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those 
who weep. We are to feel the highs and the lows of others. Someone said, when one person cries, we all ought to taste salt. That's what Jesus does. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, it says that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because He's been here and He understands. One of the reasons many of us have trouble sympathizing with others is because we don't understand other people. See, most of us have as our goal to be understood rather than to understand. And if I don't understand what it's like to be in your shoes, then I can't sympathize with you. You say, well, it's not my nature to be sympathetic. Well, Peter knows that's not your nature. He knows your nature is selfish. That's why he's given you a commandment here to be sympathetic. You see, this is not a personality issue. This is something every one of us is to be doing. That means when you relate to someone else, it's not enough to give them the right words. You have to express to them that you feel what they're feeling. Fred Craddock tells of the time he went home for his mother's funeral. And his sister had taken care of their mother the last years of her life, and so her death was especially hard on his sister. And they were at the funeral, and after the service, friends brought food over to the house for a reception, and everyone was there. And a woman came up to his sister and said something pious like, she's better off now in heaven, rather impervious to the emptiness that that had left in her life. Well, his sister didn't say anything, but Craddock went up to the woman and said, it's obvious you have never lost your mother. You see, it's not enough for us to give people the right words. We are to feel sympathy for people, and that is to be expressed to them. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus died, Jesus didn't just say, it's going to be okay. Jesus didn't just say, trust God. He did say those things, but he said them in the context of the verse that says what? Jesus wept. Jesus said the right words, but he also had the sympathy for the pain that those people were experiencing. And that's the pattern we're to follow in relationships. We are to be sympathetic. Third characteristic of your relationships is loyalty. And that's seen in verse 8 in the word brotherly. The Greek word is actually Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Now we dealt with that subject in detail back in chapter 1 and verse 22, so what I simply want to emphasize this morning is that one of the primary characteristics of brotherly love is loyalty. I have two brothers. Growing up, we didn't always get along. But even when we had conflicts with each other, there was an underlying loyalty between us. You see, I could say all kinds of things about my brothers, but if you said those same things, they were fighting words. There is a loyalty in brotherly love that refuses to be broken. 
And Peter is saying that same loyalty ought to be evident in our relationships. Ought to be evident, especially in the husband-wife relationship. You ought to be saying to your wife, your spouse, I love you, period. No ifs, no ands, no buts. Divorce is not an option. Heard about one little boy who asked his mom, did you ever think about divorcing dad? And she said, divorce, no, murder, yes. Loyalty. And it ought to be evident in our relationships between our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We are bound together in the family of God, and our love ought to be evident by the fact that we are loyal to one another. Fourth characteristic is sensitivity. And you see it in that word, kind-hearted. This root word means bowels. And the idea is that you feel in your gut what other people are feeling. Now what's interesting to me is this is our second emotional word we've come across. Sympathy and this gut feeling, which tells me something. Christian behavior must go beyond cold duty. Others must genuinely see that we care for them from the heart. And then out of those feelings that we have, we should respond by kindness and giving. Of Jesus, it says this in Matthew 9, 36. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the crowds and he felt compassion. And you know what he does right after that? He sends the disciples out to cast out their diseases or cast out their demons and heal their disease. He does something about that feeling of compassion. In Matthew 14, 14, it says, And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and he felt compassion for them. You know what the next words say? And he healed their sick. Our feelings of compassion need to be there and then they need to lead us to acts of kindness. And that's an essential element in relationships. We have to have that kind of compassion toward other people. It's especially needful in our marriage relationships because there are times when your spouse is going to have difficult days, circumstantially and emotionally. If your wife is like my wife, she has a couple or three difficult emotional days every month. You know why it takes three women on PMS to change a light bulb? It just does. You know the difference between a woman with PMS and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. You know the difference between a woman with PMS and a pit bull? Lipstick. My wife's not here this weekend. Can you tell? See, there are times when you have to be especially sensitive to the needs of the other person. I'm, my wife does the same thing for me. See, I have PMS every weekend. 
pre-message syndrome. And I'm like a zombie on Sunday morning, and my wife accommodates that. She does not expect me to do one single thing on Sunday morning except get ready. She does everything for me. Even brings me my coffee on Sunday morning. She tells the kids, don't ask your dad any difficult questions like, where's the milk? (laughs) See, she is sensitive to me. And that's an ingredient we need in our relationships. We need to have that kind-heartedness toward the other person. This word is only used one other place in the New Testament. That's Ephesians 4.32 where it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And there it's closely linked with forgiveness, which tells me that the person with the tender heart is not only the first to feel, he's the first to forgive. Fifth characteristic of our relationships is humility. Verse 8 says at the end, we are to be humble in spirit. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and humble in heart. And Peter says we're to have that same heart attitude, an attitude of humility. Humility is a key to relationships because pride says, I know, I'm right, I don't need you. I could never do that. I'm better than you. Pride divides. Humility says, you go first. You matter to me. You're more important than me. Humility is able to form those hard words that are so necessary in relationships like, I was wrong. Forgive me. I need you. Humility unites You show me a church full of humble people and I will show you a church that is united. But you know, humility is one of the most difficult traits to hang on to. Someone has said, humility is a trait so rare that when you realize you have it, you've lost it. Heard about a pastor who was so burdened by his responsibility that he went into the sanctuary one day to pray and Falling on his knees, he lamented, Oh Lord, I am nothing. I am nothing. Well, the minister of education passed by and overheard the prayer, and he was moved to join the pastor on his knees. Shortly, he too was crying aloud, Oh Lord, I too am nothing. I am nothing. The janitor of the church, awed by the sight of the two men praying, joined them crying, Oh Lord, I also am nothing. I am nothing. At this, the minister of education nudged the pastor and said, now look who thinks he's nothing. Humility is a difficult trait to get and it's a difficult trait to hang on to. But it's a necessary ingredient in our relationships with other people. And then the sixth is mercy. Peter seems to understand that at this point you may be saying, well, all this sounds real nice. And with some people, it's easy to show love and unity and compassion and tenderness and to be humble. But what about the people who are a real pain? 
What about the people who have done me wrong? Well, that's why he includes this sixth characteristic, mercy. Notice verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. I read about a mother who had a scout troop, and she said to her son, I'm not taking any of you to the zoo until you forgive Billy for stealing your candy bar. He said, but Billy won't be forgiven. He won't even listen. His mother turned to him and said, well, then you make him. So her son chased Billy down, knocked him to the ground, sat on him and yelled, I forgive you for stealing my candy bar, but it would be a lot easier to forget if you would wipe that chocolate off your face. Some people that we have to deal with are still wearing the chocolate on their face. Some people we have to deal with just seem to continue to irritate us. What do we do in those situations? Well, we show mercy. Mercy means giving kindness where judgment is deserved. Giving kindness where judgment is deserved. And that doesn't come naturally. Naturally, when you're attacked, you want to strike back. You want to retaliate. You want to get even. But Peter says, when you get evil, don't return evil. When you get insults, don't return insults. Instead, do the revolutionary thing of giving them a blessing. Now, the word blessing is a Greek word from which we get our English word eulogy. It means to speak well of. You are to compliment them. You are to build them up. You are to desire the best for them. As Christians, there are three levels we can live on. One is the satanic level. That's when you return evil for good. The second is the human level. That's when you return good for good and evil for evil. But the third is the divine level. That's when you return good for evil. And that's the level Peter is calling us to. We are to operate on the basis of mercy. And then Peter elaborates on how that's to be done in verses 10 and 11. First of all, he tells us it has to do with what you say. Verse 10, look at the end of that verse. Refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. If you're going to show mercy to someone, you're going to have to control your words. Now, words have tremendous power. With your words, you can build a person up or you can tear a person down. You can save a marriage or you can destroy a marriage. Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me didn't know much about words. Because you can break your arm and it'll heal in six weeks. Some of you still remember words that were spoken 30 years ago and they still hurt today. When people throw evil words at us, we are to refrain from countering with evil words. Someone rightly said, whenever you sling mud, you lose ground. That's a biblical principle. 
But secondly, he not only talks about what we say, but he talks about what we do. Verse 11, and let him turn away from evil and do good. That's real simple. When someone does evil to you, you don't respond in evil. Rather, you do the reverse of that. You do good for them. So it's what you say, it's what you do, and thirdly, it's what you seek. The end of verse 11 says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Peace in relationships is not just something you can take or leave. A broken relationship is not just something you can be indifferent about. Peter says you are to seek it and pursue peace. Now, it's not always possible to achieve peace. That's why Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. There may be times when you can't accomplish peace. But when you don't have peace, it, could, it should never be because you are not pursuing it and seeking it with all your being. So you should show mercy by what you say, blessing. What you do, good. What you seek, peace. You say, well, that's pretty radical. Why should I be expected to treat my enemies that way? Well, Peter gives us three reasons in closing. First of all, that's what God has done for you. Look at the end of verse 9. But give a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. God can say you will never have to forgive someone else more than I have already forgiven you. God can say you will never be able to bless someone else more than I have already blessed you. In fact, there's an interesting paradox in Scripture, and that is the more you are insulted, the more you are persecuted, the greater your blessing in heaven becomes. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Number one reason, that's what God has done for you. Number two, that's the secret to loving life and seeing good days. Look at verse 10. For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue, let him turn away from evil, let him seek peace. You see, that explains why in the same circumstances with the same people under the same weather, some people are happy and some people aren't. Because some people do relationships God's way and some people do relationships their own way. And then there's a third reason, and that is that that's the only way God can protect you. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You say, well, who's going to look out for me if I turn the other cheek? Who's going to stand up for me if I don't do it? Well, the answer is the Lord. This verse says, His eyes are upon you, and He hears your prayer. But if you choose to retaliate, you're on your own because you're going against the Lord. Now, did you notice something? Back in verse 7 it says, if you don't have a right relationship with your wife, your prayers are hindered. Here in verse 12 it says, if you don't have a right relationship with your enemies, 
your prayers are affected. You see, relationships are a priority to God. Are you having a good day? Don't look for the answer in your circumstances. Look for the answer in your relationships. You can assure yourself of a good day if you will relate to others with harmony, sympathy, loyalty, sensitivity, humility, and mercy. We're going to close in prayer. Before we do, I'm going to ask Donna and Chris, who were baptized this morning, to come forward. And after we close in prayer, I'll give you an opportunity to greet and encourage those young ladies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that in such a practical way challenges us in the relationships of our life. And Father, I pray that we might stop making excuses about why we're not happy, blaming them on circumstances or difficulties or other people and realize that you have given us by your spirit and by your word the power to love life and see good days. And Lord, I pray that we might begin to apply your pattern for relationships in our lives so that we might experience that and might show the beauty of the Lord Jesus in the way we relate to other people. We pray in his worthy name. Amen.